Everybody doing okay this morning? I'm Steve. I'm one of the elders here. I'm glad to be leading us through our study of the Word of God this morning. Before Liam went to class, he said, Steve, don't make it long. Which is funny because I'm like, you don't even know what long is because you're sitting in there where Larry will reward you with good answers to the Bible questions with gummy worms. And out here, they just have to listen to the droning of my voice. But it's a good thing. I was unaware of Richard Williams until this last week. And I will just ask, because this will be interesting, does anybody know Richard Williams passed away this week? Anybody familiar with him? Because sometimes we have people who are like, who take deeper cuts into culture. But Richard Williams was an animator, a cartoon animator, and he spent his whole career doing this. And his probably chief project was that he was the director of animation for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So, you know, I, we have a diversity of crowd in here. So some of us that are a little bit more seasoned, seasoned, if you will, are very familiar with Roger Rabbit, who framed Roger Rabbit. Some of you aren't not, but it, it, even if you aren't, I would say it's an interesting film to watch because this was one of the last, um, you know, cartoon integration films that happened before, like, our full-blown move into CGI. So the way that they created this and then the way that they approached the integration of real-life characters with animated characters was completely fascinating. And Richard Williams was the exact... Uh, right person to lead this project because he was prolific when it came to animation. So not only was he dedicated to his personal projects, but he also saw as part of his calling uh, a transference of his knowledge to make sure that the stuff that he figured out didn't perish with him, but was able to go out and teach other animators. And apparently he's the father considered to be the father of modern animation. So he actually, in order to really cultivate this at the conclusion of his career, he had a project he was working on that was supposed to integrate everything that he learned throughout his life, and that working title of it is, Will I Live to Finish This? Like, even though it had nothing to do about his own survival, he basically had this project, and he's just like, I'm hoping that I can finish this before I pass, and unfortunately, he was unable to before he passed away last week. So again, this is, you know, I'm scrolling through Twitter. I see, a, you know, something about him. And I start into this, you know, this wormhole of useless internet stuff, which is how I start every single day. But one of the reasons that I'm always invested in that is because uh, in my role, in my calling, I always feel that I'm called to be able to communicate concepts, ideas, facts that people might not know. I actually have a, a, a document on my laptop, which is my speaking engagements since I first started preaching about 25 years ago. So I actually, every about 10, 12 months, go back on this list, and I update every single speaking arrangement that I've had. And I've, I, one time I tried to total it out, and if you can't count all the classes I've spoke at, all this type of stuff, like I've spoken for all, probably over the... Gladwellian 10,000 hours, right? Which means I should actually be good at this, but I still suck. And that's just, that's just another digression. But I think about all the words and concepts that I've tried to relay and communicate, and then I come to this question that you're probably asking yourself right now. It's the question that always plagued me. So like, does any of this really matter? It's a question that my daughter and wife constantly ask. 
when I'm spewing four stories? Does anything coming out of your mouth really matter? But I think that that's actually the call that we have all in our own lives, right? The older we get, the more that we see that life is short, that you know, people pass, and then we look in the mirror and we ask ourselves, what is the contribution that I have brought to the table? Will, will I live to finish this, and what is this? And the reason I was thinking about this is that we're in the midst of our study of the book of Galatians. We've called it Backpacks and Burdens because that's the description in the sixth chapter that Paul is pushing the churches of Galatia to be able to bear each other's burdens as they're taking their own with them. But as I talked last week, we're in the midst of the third chapter of the book of Galatians, which is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of churches in modern-day Turkey. And last week, we saw that he opened up his can upon them, called them (laughs) bewitched, asked about their foolishness, because after all of this important communication that Paul said to them, right? Like Paul is trying to say, to be a follower of Jesus, this is what you need to do. It's like he left and they were like, okay, you know, let's go our own way. And I said that Galatians chapter 3 is really the apex of what Paul is trying to communicate in this book. And in doing so, he's talking about a subject, and this is where I unleash my $3 theological terms. He's introducing the subject of soteriology. And nobody calls it soteriology unless you're theologically minded and you have no friends. The Greek there, soteria, is the word for salvation. So basically, it's the study of how you and I are saved. See, so we come to church all the time, and maybe you'll even articulate this idea. It's like, hey, it's all about Jesus. And those are good things to say because that's what you're called to do when you're a Christian, right? You know, your Sunday school answer is Jesus, Bible, you know, Peter, whatever the answers are. What's the difference between Moses and Noah? But we don't usually think about the mechanism Like, how are we saved? And again, even that word that I used, it was inadvertent, me saying mechanism, the idea like, you know, that's what God is. It's like God is just all this set of gears and all this stuff. There's so much about soteriology that we just don't understand. And I think that's why we take different approaches to that, right? When we consider how we are saved from whatever this is, right? Generally, our first reaction for many of us in this room is we just accept it, right? Like, How are we saved? Don't know. I don't want to see what the cook is doing in the kitchen, but it just happens. You know, I place my order, it's there, I eat it, that's great. Like, we don't usually contemplate, so we just merely accept what it is. But then we would like to think that there are some of us that are more pensive about it. And the way that we approach our salvation is that we create new paths for us to be saved. Now, I, I think this is even not just popular for the pagans, But also for many of us Christians, and I'll get to this in a little bit, I think this is what's happening in the church of Galatia. But when we usually think about, okay, what does it take for me to get beyond this life to the positivity of what God is calling to, so many times we are disenfranchised by what we believe the explanation is that we create our own paths to get there. Does that make sense? And again, I will say this as a challenge for us, is that even as Christians, some of us hit the point where we try to create our own salvation. 
So we're like, yeah, yeah, Jesus is important, but what's really important is the way that I embrace justice, or what's really important is the way that I steer clear of sin. We all have different ways of manipulating the message of Jesus. And then I would just say finally, and maybe this is also both a pagan and Christian issue, it's just that oftentimes when it comes to how we're being saved, we kind of just ignore everything about it, right? We're kind of just like, you know, it happens I'm not exactly sure how, but I'll just trust that somebody has got this figured out better than me. I'll come to church, and maybe the church leadership understands that, and I, by nature, will benefit from this massive pyramid scheme that will allow me to purchase reduced-priced cleaning products, right? Like, however that works out, I'm disinterested in it. But that's really the issue that Paul is trying to get to the Galatian church. What's the point of the book of Galatians and this bigger, it's what's the point of all of this? Why are we here today? Why does this matter? Will I be able to get this done before I die? Hopefully this sermon will fall under the confines of that question as we start Galatians chapter three. I have the trusty dandy pew Bible. For me, that's page 824. If you have a digital copy of the scriptures, we're gonna start in verse six this morning. I'm gonna start by reading Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you, so that those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Doesn't that sound so much like I just read the Bible? Like as much as you're like, okay, I'm reading through it and I get that. And you're like, I just call it like Abraham righteousness. There was just a lot of stuff moving there. And you're just like, amen. But really, if you go back and look, explain to me what that is. It gets a little confusing. So we'll try to break it down. And it all starts with the guy of Abraham. And this is an artist rendering. He lived few thousand years before Jesus was even born, so we have no photographic evidence. This is just he had to look like this because he had a turban and was pensive. So Abraham is a key historical figure. I would even argue that outside of Jesus Christ, Abraham is probably the most important historical figure who ever lived, right? So take your 20th century's biases out of the way, you know, you're like, it's got to be Hitler or even going back, you know, towards this type of thing. It's got to be George Washington or Napoleon, whatever. No, I would say that Abraham is one of the most important people who have ever lived and maybe the most important people other than Jesus Christ. And you're like, you know, but Mary was his mom. And if there's no Mary, there's no Jesus. So she has to be important. Touche, I'll let it slide. But this is why I make the argument. It's because of the three major world religions, and you know there are other ones, but of three of the major world religions, Abraham is seen as a patriarch of them. And we know that in the story of the Old Testament, right? And that's why we're still talking about it in the New Testament, is because the Jews held on to Abraham and saw him as the highest example of what it means to be a follower of Yahweh God. And then the Christians came in and understood, and we'll talk a little bit about why Abraham is essential to our faith. And then I would offer that what Muhammad really did within his co-opting of both the Jewish and the Christian figures was like, who's the important people so that I can weave that into Islam? And he was able to identify Abraham because of his origin. And that's actually why we get to this point to where the child of Hagar is actually offshoot of what is supposed to be Islam today. This person was critically important, but his importance to the Jews and their system of belief was higher than either of the other two. 
And again, the reason why is because he was seen as the uber believer. He was seen, not the one who grabs an uber, but like the ultimate believer. He was perceived as the person who best lived out what it meant to follow Yahweh God. Now, the thing I always find interesting about this, and this is actually how the Jewish rabbis did it very often, is they kind of ignored the first part of his life as we read the scriptures. Because if you look, Abraham's calling happened in his senior citizen years. And actually, you know, if you look at the dating there, it was really very senior citizen years. Like few people lived as long as he did. And his calling occurred in that time. He came from a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, which was you know, basically in what we would know biblically as Babylon, the point being is that Abraham was the best pagan to ever become one of God's people. Okay, so he was called from his pagan land by God as a senior citizen to go follow Yahweh God. And yet somehow within their system, it made him this, again, this this highest model of what you wanted to be as a follower of God. Now, part of that that they weave into this, and by the way, there are whole rabbinic tales that create the backstory to kind of soften this up. And it was like Abraham was a pagan, but he was really a really good pagan, and he always followed God the whole time. So it's just like they're trying to go back and redeem this. But regardless, it came to be is that if you wanted to be a good Jewish follower of God, you wanted to emulate Abraham. So notice Paul brings this up, and and again, if you were with us last week, you're like, this seems like out of nowhere, right? He's talking about the the churches of Galatia struggling between their, their legalism, right, and their libertarianism. And he brings up Abraham, but Abraham's important because they use him as this model to be able to... Uh, correctly assert the authority of the law and legalism. So what Paul is trying to say is like, hey, you're big on Abraham, that's great. Let's pull him out as an example and try to see who he really was. And this is the question that comes down to with who Abraham is, is Abraham, the scriptures say throughout the Old Testament, was righteous. And to the Jews and to the Galatians, righteousness was the key to pleasing God. And actually, I'll tell you for us today, righteousness is important for you and I. Because basically, you know, you can see that is it's how we are right before God, righteousness is, how we are justified before God, how we are whole before God. That is actually our pursuit as followers of Jesus. How do you and I stand before the God, creator of the universe, who understands what holiness is at a level that we will never comprehend. How do you and I stand before him without getting raiders of the lost ark melted, obliterated by his holiness? We want to be righteous. And the system that the Jews devised, and again, we have to talk about it in this way because it is the system that they devised was a system by which you could attain righteousness by being the best law abider possible. So that if you could live perfectly, it's good. I took out this, uh, th- this reference, but I keep coming back to it. I read a book in grade school. And again, this is dating myself because now this thing's like 35 years ago in print. But it was a book that was supposed to be a cutesy little book. with how to become perfect in three days. And the book, which was a kid's book, was based upon this book that was how to be perfect in three days. And basically, it was this young man reading the book trying to become perfect. And then the end of the book tells you it's impossible. Yet even though you and I know today 
that there's no way for us to be perfect, we kind of fool ourselves to believing that. And the Jews, in a way, did that. Um, I'll come back to Paul here in a minute, but from, the, from Jubilees, which is extra-biblical writing, speaks of this of Abraham. Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the world and well-pleased in righteousness all the days of his life. What we call that in uh, historical terms, history terms, and I always mispronounce it, hagiography or hagiography? Hagiography, which is this revisionist history where we look at the people behind us who live and try to make their exploits greater than they actually were, right? American tall tales are of this. And basically what the Jews did was like, not only was Abraham God's dude, he was the best of them. Unfortunately, as we understand the whole of scripture, Paul writes in Romans 3 that true righteousness from any of us is unattainable by our own means because all have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I've studied this in the original languages because I tried to figure out how my mother could somehow have fit under this umbrella because she's perfect. She has never sinned. Like, she wakes up at 5 o'clock. I would walk by her room and was praying, man. Like, I know that she has never uttered a curse word in any way, shape, or form. The only time she's ever missed church is when she's had a fever over 104 degrees. And by then, it's close on the line. So every time I try to think of Romans 3.23, I think of my mother. And then I go home and I try to, you know, I dig through their house when them there and just try to uncover all the sins that she has. Because I know she's smoking pot at some point. And, and Kaylin, we don't tell grandma that dad preached about her smoking pot. But it might just illustrate the chasm between her saintliness and my sinfulness. I don't know. But we like to think that perfection is attainable by humanity, and yet it is not. So as much as they wanted to say that Abraham was perfect and revised the history, he was not. And in fact, what the scriptures say, and this is the book of Genesis, who tells us the story of Abraham. And I love this too, because when you go read the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis, the dude was far from perfect, right? Like he kind of he kind of prostituted out his wife in a way when he went to Egypt because he's just like, I would rather not be dead, so my wife's attractive, which, again, this is somebody who the Jews are like, no, he was the best. I was like, no, he was not the best. Hey, geography, the revisionist history, right? But as we're looking at this, even the book of Genesis does not say that Abraham's relationship to God was based on his personal righteousness, what he did. It says Abraham believed the Lord and... It was credited to him as righteousness. Now, again, we were reading through this. You see that this was, you know, uh, you know part of this is what, what Paul is trying to do here. But this is important for you and I to understand. This is the process of soteriology. This is why Abraham was righteous before God. Not because of his great past actions, but because it was credited to him as righteousness. What? His belief and who God was and what God could do is what actually brought him righteousness. So I always deal with people who are like, hey, you know, there's Old Testament God, New Testament God. Like Old Testament God is just like ticked. It's like first day of school, the alarm goes off. He's just angry God. But in the New Testament, he's chill. It's like last day of school God. He's like throwing all of his snapper, uh, trapper keepers up in the air. It's just like a great experience. He's ready to go for the summer. There's no difference, friends. It's just how we choose to read the story. 
And what Paul is trying to show them here is like, look, you are elevating Abraham to a level that he should not be determined. But the thing that they got right is they understand that he was significant because the promise that God gave to Abraham, again, not because he was awesome, but because God's just like, hey, you believed me when you were pagan Abraham and I told you to move your family hundreds of miles away because you actually had faith I'm going to do something through you that will make you keenly important to all of humanity. And he said, I will bless who bless you, I will curse who curse you, and all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. So what Paul is trying to say is like, look, Abraham's righteousness was a gift from God just because he believed. And you and I are the beneficiaries of that because one old guy believed thousands of years ago, you and I benefit from it because we have the opportunity to be blessed. And that's why here in verse seven, when he says the scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, what he is saying is that the Gent, and again, I'm sorry, this is churchy, but Gentiles are non-Jews, right? They're the Goyim, they're the people who are not God's people. What Paul is trying to teach the Jewish-based Galatians is like, look, you look down on the Gentiles, you're partially racist to them because you're like, you're not whole blood. What, they're muggles, right? The muggles of the theological world are the Gentiles, yet however, they are just like Abraham. They are pagans who were able to believe in God and be blessed through him. So this is phase one. Will you stick with me as we go through phase two here of Galatians chapter three, verses 10 through 12. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it's written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Again, there's a lot moving right here. Let's try to break down what, a, what Paul is trying to teach the, church of Galatians, the churches in Galatia here. And what he is trying to explain to them is what is the path toward righteousness? So if we've established that the guy you think who was the most righteous did not cross the finish line because of his conditioning, but because he took a hop on God's golf cart of grace, which that metaphor just came to me. Somebody write that stuff down. I'm in fuego this morning. But the path of righteousness then, how we get right before God is twofold. There are two paths to God. You're like, no, there's only Jesus in one way. Okay, the Bible's wrong, I don't know. But I'm telling you, there are two paths to God. There is the path of law and rule and regulation, and then there is the path of grace. Two paths actually exist. But even though the two paths exist, we deceive ourselves to thinking that one of the paths is actually attainable, and that is the path of law. And again, this is what God did, is that he told his people, look, I am God, I'm making covenant with you. I have these 613 commands, and yes, the Jews even numbered them so that they know which ones they are. Here they are before you, just do your best at this, obey them all, and you'll be righteous before me. And they're like, that seems like a great path. But they did not read the fine print, and I say fine print tongue in cheek, because it wasn't fine print, because it was in the very law that they cite in Deuteronomy chapter 27, the same Torah, the law that they're holding to says, cursed is anyone who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. The path of law exists. 
It is a viable path to righteousness. You can stand before God in full righteousness through the path of law, but the problem is you can only make it to the final round if you do so perfectly. Because break any singular law and you get a game over. And there's no cheat code for extra lives here. You get one shot. And if you blow it, it's done. And this is what Paul wants them to see, is that you are passionate about the law because it was the system that felt natural to you. And as much as we talked about legalism and libertarianism last week, friends, we love legalism because it makes sense. I was listening to a a podcast this week, and actually it comes through um, Michael Lewis, who wrote Moneyball, and he wrote um, uh, um, the financial one that I can't think of right now. Anyways, you could Google it. I'm I'm not even going to labor it. Somebody's like, I'm like, yeah, that's the one. Okay. So Michael Lewis has a podcast against the rules, and his first season was all about fairness. And in this fairness, he talked about how they were doing experiments with monkeys. This is like a TED Talk, too. You can watch this one, which is interesting. But basically, they had two different monkeys, and they had a clear plexiglass before them, and they asked them to do tasks. And when one of the monkeys did a task, they hand him a cucumber, and he could see the other one got a cucumber. Well, they started to change up the rewards, and they gave one monkey, instead of a cucumber, they gave one a cucumber, and the other one a grape. And they like grapes better. So it was like the one monkey's eating his grape and the other is eating his cucumber, looking at the one who did the same thing and received the grape. So the next time they did the same thing, he handed the one, you know, same one a grape, same one a cucumber. The one with the cucumber chucks it back at the researcher. Kind of like, suck on your cucumber. And their whole thing is trying to say is like, no, fairness and justness is this like evolutionary thing. I'm going to say that it's a pattern within the kingdom of God, friends. We long for justice, and in doing so, we are people who love to be legalists. I'll tell you, even though legalists, they suffer because they're like, they can observe injustices around them, but they will never assume it on their own behalf, right? Like, I'm a great legalist when it comes to you. When it's me, I get cheat day. And that's usually how we want to live. There is a path to righteousness that involves, that involves us being able to accomplish it, but you have to be perfect. And if you're not perfect, what the scripture says is game over. You do not pass go. You do not collect $200. Don't try it because you will stand before God and you will not be righteous. And what Paul wants them to say is like, look, you want to lean back into this legalist posture because it makes you feel warm and cuddly, but you have done what we talked about the beginning when it comes to soteriology sometimes we accept it but then other times we try to create new paths and what paul is accusing them of doing is making a new path to righteousness i want to go on to the next verses verses 13 and 14 christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. So what Paul outlines here, and again, coming back to that term that I said we shouldn't, but the mechanism, how are you and I saved? How are you and I saved? Like, what does that look like? You're like Jesus. Okay, what was that whole process that we read through the new testament 
how are you and I saved? And yes, it starts with Jesus. But it doesn't just start with Jesus as a person. It starts with him being fully divine. Him being God incarnate, right? Carne, the, the, the Latin for flesh. God comes off his throne, comes down. And what's interesting is that of the, and I'm just going to do it for illustration, of the two paths towards righteousness, Jesus comes through and he goes, okay, I'll take option A. And at the beginning of the story, you're like, don't take option A. Nobody ever, nobody ever succeeds at option A. And Jesus is like, I'll, I'll take my chances. And he does it perfectly. Jesus navigates through life by the system of law, and he is successful, yea, for Jesus. But not only that, though, in the sacrifice of who he is and what he does through his life, he takes upon himself not just his righteousness, but he takes the entire opportunity for the righteousness of humanity on his back, and he is made the sacrificial lamb. And you can read about that in the Old Testament constantly. There were sacrifices that were made at the temple. What's interesting is that the prerequisites for the sacrifices, they usually had to be you know, sheep that were completely perfect without blemish. If you had a blemished sheep, it was not appropriate for sacrifice. And yet Jesus, his life is then presented as the perfect unblemished sheep. The apostle John, when he's writing his gospel, notes very early in Jesus's ministry where he is seen walking in the exclamation, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Like what John wants to say is that Jesus was the unblemished lamb. But unfortunately, in order to take care of the righteousness issue, you and I, even in partaking on his righteousness, would have still lived under the curse of our sin. And that's in the law. So in the DNA of the legalism that the Jews were actually practicing, with which the Galatians were struggling, in the law it said if someone's guilty of a capital offense and put to death, if their body is exposed on a pole, you mustn't leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it the same day. In the law, there was a commandment that was a curse for those who were hung on trees. That's the, the pole, right? So it was within the law an ultimate curse, which is interesting because the Romans, who were in control of the world, that which Jesus and the first church emerged, had this understanding of this. So what was their preferred method of capital punishment? Crucifixion. And generally, part of crucifixion was not that you were killed by crucifixion, but that your body was supposed to hang there and not just embarrassment, but almost like, like religious warfare, a psychological hit knowing not only were you going to die, but that your death was going to make you susceptible to the curse that your very beliefs articulated. And yet what we see in our faith is that what Jesus does is the perfect lamb is he takes the curse from us and takes all of our baggage and everything dies with him on the cross. And that's why, friends, Christians are weird, right? We're weird. 
But to understand that as decor or tattoo art, that we look at the crucifix and we think, man, that looks kind of cool. It's like lowercase t. You can adorn it with all sorts of squiggles and make it look even more ornate, right? That our elevation of the cross is our elevation of an instrument of death. But again, the irony there is that what was once death, Jesus redeems for our life. Again, I've studied this stuff for decades, and I believe it, but I still don't understand why. Why this way? Why this path? I think the biggest thing about it is that what this path does is it makes the hero of our spiritual lives somebody that is not us. Legalism is a system by which you and I try to elevate ourselves to make us feel superior. You know, like, hey, I I might not be the best guy, but I'm not that guy, right? (sighs) Yes, I'll do it. Friends, this is what's happening with our president right now, right? You can be like, so many of us feel morally superior now because we're just like, I am way better than the president of the United States. I'm just going to say it. I think that's how we view things. I think we can view ourselves as morally superior, and yet that is basically legalism. That is the path of the law for us to be able to look at ourselves and be like, hey, at least I'm not that. And unfortunately, in the scope of righteousness, (laughs) friends, I'm the Donald Trump of sinning, I guess. Again, sorry, that was, I'm not meaning to offend that, Pick whatever political, literary character, whatever you want to do. We all suck. There is no way that we can win this. And that's the point. I think that's why God does it. God's like, look, it's got to be bigger than you. It's got to be something that you can't achieve, and I did it. So you can accept it or try to make your own path. You can even ignore it, but friends, righteousness. Righteousness came through the cross. What does the cross do? This is what Paul discusses here. Within the, within the text. The first thing that the, the cross does is it redeems us, right? And again, we're, we're kind of, redeem is another one of these Christian words, but basically redeem is take something useless and make it valuable again. It's the recycling of the biblical world. And that's what Jesus does. Through the cross, takes you and I that are imperfect and somehow makes us appear before God as perfect. It makes no sense. We don't deserve it. That's why it's beautiful. It provides us the blessing, the blessing of Abraham. And what Paul is trying to do is right-size the relationship. What Paul is trying to say is like, look, okay, go ahead and give that to Abraham because he is like this guy that God used. That's great. But the big thing is that we have access to the blessings of Abraham that we did not deserve because of the cross. So you and I are blessed because of his faith, but that doesn't come to fruition if not for what Jesus does. And then finally, we have the spirit. And again, we who are not charismatic Pentecostal folk so many times underplay the value of the spirit. But friends, when life sucks and you're a follower of Jesus, it still sucks, but the spirit can help us understand what is happening. The spirit can give us hope for tomorrow. What you're going through in life, even if it's challenging, if it's something that you don't, God has given you the spirit because of Jesus' sacrifice to help you through this. 
and that matters. That matters. Okay, and it matters to me, I, you know, and I'm, I, I would, you, you guys are good Christians, you're like, that matters to me too. Okay, then what? Then what do we do with that? Does that mean it's like, okay, Steve, now I guess you're telling me that I have to leave everything behind, like, you know, join a convent, enter the ministry, like, what does this look like? Do I have to, does everything have to be like Bible verses and, you know, Christian art tattoos now? Like, what, what does all this look like for me in my life? Friends, just, number one, own it, accept it on yourself. And then the second thing is, is that make sure that you're, as you're living life with other people, make that the reality of your existence. We are blessed on this earth to be able to create things, but the one thing we ought not create is a new way to try to save ourselves. We should invest ourselves here for the betterment of the kingdom of God. And that's the calling that you and I, all of us have as his followers. That's what he wants for the church of Galatia. That's what he wants for us today. Paul also wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We become righteousness not because we're good, not because we are right or worthy to stand before God, but because of what Christ Jesus has done for us. That's how we're saved. So if you believe that, live that. Let it be a reflection of your life. If you don't believe that, or you believe parts of it, I'm not going to say that's okay, but it's understandable. But what I think what our prayer for you would be is like, what are the obstacles of for you understanding is that for me to stand right before God, I just need to accept what Jesus is doing in my life. Just accept what he has done. And it will be credited to you as righteousness. Will you pray with me? God, these types of biblical texts are fascinating, but they're just not as compelling as the other great stories of you doing massive miracles, parting oceans, cleansing lepers. Like, that's the stuff where we usually hang in on. So I know that reading some theological advice from a guy from 2,000 years ago isn't as compelling, but boy, Father, the the story and narrative of that is in our lives. Will you remind us that we are just not able? We're not able. That our need of a hero needs to be beyond our own capabilities. And that you have saved us. That you came to earth and gave all so that someday we might dwell with you for eternity. We might not understand it all. We might even have doubts. Help us to accept your grace. Help us to accept your grace. In the name of Jesus, amen.